Hello, everyone. Welcome to Policy Beyond Politics podcast of the Center for Public Policy Research. Center for Public Policy Research, or CPPR, is a public policy think tank located in Kochi, and we engage in diverse fields like urban governance, urban mobility, governance and law, livelihood, public health, education, international relations, maritime security and defense, and so on. Our podcast series covers a host of issues of current and contemporary relevance in public public policy domain. Previous episodes of our podcast series can be found on our website, www.cppr.in. I'm Sharon Susan Koshi, Research Associate at CPPR, where I'm focusing predominantly on maritime and continental security aspects of the Indo-Pacific. In this episode of Policy Beyond Politics, Joining us today from Chennai is Dr. Stanley Johnny, the International Affairs Editor at The Hindu. A PhD in International Studies from the Center for West Asian Studies, Jawaharlal Nehru University. He has been writing on international affairs and Indian foreign policy in the Hindu group of publications for nearly a decade. The IVLP Fellow of the U.S. State Department and an India-Australia Youth Dialogues alumnus, he has also contributed to think tanks such as the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C. and the Manohar Parikar Institute for Defense Studies and Analysis in New Delhi. He's the author of the ISIS Caliphate, From Syria to the Doorsteps of India, which came out in 2018. Welcome, Stanley. Stanley is here with us today to discuss his second book, Comrades and Mullahs, China, Afghanistan, and the New Asian Geopolitics, which came out in March 2022, briefly into the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan. Comrades and Mullahs, co-authored by Stanley Johnny and Anand Krishnan, discusses the historical trajectory of Taliban's rise against the context of Soviet intervention during the late 20th century and the war on terror in the early 21st century, as well as the geopolitical implications of it all. As we know in international relations, everything is fast moving, and fortunately or unfortunately, a lot has happened since March in Afghanistan. And this is perhaps a good time to discuss the underpinnings of the current events in Afghanistan, which brings us to my first question. Stanley, as we speak Afghan, people are reeling under a major humanitarian crisis following the earthquake in June, and India has offered a helping hand. We have sent humanitarian aid to the Afghan people, and we have made it abundantly clear that we are with the Afghan people, even though New Delhi has obvious reluctance to engage uh, with the Taliban regime. So considering this nuanced approach that we have taken now, do you think there is a distinctive difference between India's engagement with Taliban 1.0 and uh, Taliban 2.0? There is. There is a clear shift in India's approach towards the Taliban because if you look at India's policy towards the Taliban in the 1990s, India was in the opposite camp uh, because uh, in the 1990s, the Taliban, you know, yeah, 95 to 2001, the Taliban were in power, but the entire northern parts of Afghanistan were controlled by opposition groups, militia groups, predominantly the Northern Alliance, commanded by Ahmad Shah Massoud, etc., etc. Uh, so uh, the Indians actually supported the Northern Alliance in coordination with Russia, Iran, and Central Asian republics. But this time, the approach is 
completely different. So India has shown its willingness to engage the Taliban. India has already sent a delegation to Kabul, uh, you know, um, headed by the Secretary of the Asian Affairs and External Affairs Ministry. Uh, and India is also sending humanitarian assistance, etc., etc. So, um, yeah, India has, and India has also opened, reopened the embassy. Uh, it sent a technical team last week, just last week. So this was unimaginable in the 1990s. So I think uh, uh, there is a consensus in New Delhi that to protect India's interests in Afghanistan, India has wide range of interests in Afghanistan, right? To protect India's interests in Afghanistan, you have to stay engaged with the government of the day in Kabul. And this is not entirely, uh, you know, surprising because this has been India's policy uh, ever since it became an independent country. India has always stayed engaged with the government of the day in Afghanistan. You know, whether it is uh, the monarchy or Daoud Khan's Republic or the communist regime, you know, even during the Soviet intervention period or even the Mujahideen time, even the Mujahideen, the, because the Mujahideen government was formed as part of an agreement hosted by the Pakistani prime minister, right? Mm. And uh, the Mujahideen factions, some of the Mujahideen factions were directly bankrolled by the Pakistani establishment. Even that didn't stop India from engaging the Mujahideen government. India had hosted Burhanuddin Rabbani uh, back in the 1990s, early 1990s, and reached out to uh, the Mujahideen and then started cultivating deep ties with Masood. So this was the approach India had taken. So this policy actually differed only when the Taliban were in power in the 1990s, that India moved away from engagement to hostility. For that, India had its own security concerns because the Taliban... Now, India saw the Taliban as a proxy of the Pakistani establishment. And then secondly, the Taliban themselves were hosting anti-India elements within uh, Afghanistan's territories. And an Indian airplane was hijacked, right, in, uh, back in the late 1990s. So India faced immediate security challenges. So in the face of that challenge, India had actually taken a hostile approach. But now I think the regional as well as the domestic dynamics in Afghanistan are different. Uh, regionally speaking, you see, uh, unlike the 1990s, no other regional power is ready to bet on the rebels against the Taliban, at least at this point of time, because the Russians are ready to engage the Taliban. The Chinese hosted the Taliban leadership uh, even before Taliban captured power, right, for negotiations. And the Chinese foreign minister visited Kabul. Uh, and the Central Asian republics, as uh, you know, uh, excluding Tajikistan, even the Central Asian republics are ready to at least stay engaged with the Taliban. And internally, domestically speaking, the Taliban seem to be stronger than uh, what they were in the 1990s, because in the 1990s you had the Northern Alliance. Uh, now the Taliban practically control the whole of Afghanistan, except maybe some patches of resistance in the Panjshir Valley. So when New Delhi looks at the situation in Afghanistan, the regional dynamics have changed. The domestic dynamics have changed. I'm not saying the Taliban have changed, which we specifically argue in the book that, uh, you know, the Taliban haven't undergone any ideological transformation. But the regional dynamics have changed. The domestic political dynamics have changed. And India, which has invested billions of dollars over the last 20 years in Afghanistan, India's stake has also gone up. So um, I think India has concluded that, uh, you know, you have to take a realistic uh, approach of the developments in Afghanistan. And even if you are not offering diplomatic recognition to the Taliban government, which would take time, mm -hmm. uh, but you have to engage the Taliban. 
So that is a clear difference from its policy in the 1990s. It is interesting that you mentioned regional participation, uh, especially in uh, navigating a complicated conundrum like this. So from India's point of view, given our geopolitical challenges right now, does regionalism come to us as perhaps the best way forward in dealing with difficult uh, neighbors, particularly uh, Afghanistan? Yeah, I think so. I think regionalism is the key, um, you know, when it comes to addressing these issues, especially when it comes to addressing the Taliban problem. Because uh, you see, India, uh, let's say that India is actually sharing a border with Afghanistan, argumentatively, but in reality, it is Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. But still, Afghanistan is in your extended neighborhood. And you have uh, historical and cultural ties with Afghanistan, which dates back uh, in, in centuries. Right? And India has developed very warm ties with the different uh, uh, Afghan regimes in the past. So uh, right now, uh, what are your interests? What are the challenges you are facing? Let's say that India has invested $3 billion in Afghanistan. So you want to protect your investments. You, you won't put in $3 billion and just walk away, right? That's not the right way of uh, diplomacy. So you have to protect your interests. And secondly, in the 1990s, you saw that the Taliban hosting anti-India elements, which posed a direct security challenges to India within Indian territories, especially in Kashmir. So you don't want the same thing to happen again. You don't want your security headaches to go up. You know, which means you don't want the Taliban to host these organizations, these militant organizations again. And then thirdly, you know, in a larger geopolitical point of view, uh, India had deepened its strategic influence in Afghanistan during the period of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan in the last 20 years. And now the Taliban are in power. And the Taliban... You know, no, there's no doubt about it. The Taliban were propped up and funded and supported by the Pakistani establishment. And from an Indian point of view, Pakistan is your traditional geopolitical rival, etc., etc. So you would not like the Pakistanis to have some kind of a strategic depth in Afghanistan. So you have immediate financial interests, you have security interests, and you have geopolitical interests. All these are coinciding and, uh, you know, converging into Afghanistan. So how to protect your interests? So in, you take any scenario to protect this interest, you will have to engage with the Taliban. There is no other goal. And how to engage with the Taliban? India doesn't have any leverage on Taliban except to the investments it, have, it, have, it has made. Right? India was a late comer when it comes to reaching out to the Taliban. The Chinese it's and the Russians, even the Iranians. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you right there, but uh, I would like to know whether it actually mattered that India missed out on the initial negotiations uh, with the Taliban. I mean, in actuality, did it have a bearing on us, perhaps, missing a seat at the table? Yeah, the joke is that uh, India put all its eggs in one basket and the Americans sat on it. So, uh, you know, because, yeah, because uh, uh, if you look at it from, a, yeah, again, from a realistic point of view, Iran. You look at Iran, okay, let's forget uh, China or um, Russia. Iran is a Shia theocratic regime, and the Taliban is a Sunni Diobandi uh, insurgency. These two are at the two extreme poles of the larger Islamist spectrum. Mm -hmm. And they had almost gone to a war in the, in the 1990s, in 1997, 1998. The Taliban had attacked the uh, uh, Mazar-e-Sharif consulate of Iran and killed uh, 
you know Iranians and then the Taliban are known for their anti-Hazara, anti-Shia, Sunni sectarianism. And even the Iranians had reached out to the Taliban. Hmm. Right, the Chinese established yeah. contacts with the Taliban in 2015. Imagine in 2015. That's because I, even even the Russians, the Russians were in the forefront of the anti-Taliban forces in the 1990s. So Moscow hosted the Taliban. That's because I think all these countries realized that the American, uh, you know, uh, controlled status quo in Afghanistan was not sustainable. Because. Uh, you know, uh, or the Taliban would at some point in the future would capture power in Kabul. So they all had reached that conclusion. Mm. So they diversified their bets. You know, they had very good relationship with the government in Afghanistan, while at the same time they reached out to the Taliban as well. Whereas Indians continued to put all its eggs, all their eggs in one basket. So that's what India betted, I think, uh, India did... Uh, uh, better on the American presence in Afghanistan too much, and the Americans just uh, they uh, signed a deal with the Taliban and said, "Okay, thank you very much. We are leaving." And then they just left. The Taliban took over Kabul, did and we, you were left with no. Did we really lack a strategic long-term vision? Is what I'm wondering now. I think uh, there was a, uh, there was an over-reliance on you know the U U.S. presence in Afghanistan. So that's what it happened. We. But, you know, after that, you can see the difference. There is a completely different approach in New Delhi, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to the Ukraine war. Right. They are very keen not to repeat the same mistake. Right. Because, you know, because the Americans in the last 20 years, they were saying all kinds of things in Afghanistan. They said, we will never talk with the terrorists at the, initially, at the initial phase of the war. Mm -hmm. You know, the, when the Taliban were ready to surrender, they said, no, we will never have, uh, we will never talk with the terrorists and then we want Complete defend, uh, complete defeat of the Taliban. Uh, Ronald Rumsfeld said that in, in in 2001, and then in 2020, Trump administration reached out to the Taliban. They practically gave away the whole of Afghanistan to the Taliban. Mm. So Indian problem was that yes, India uh, was over reliant on the American presence or America's ability to shape the security situation in Afghanistan. I think that blew back on us. Yeah, uh, but now you don't have uh, many options, and you have to engage the Taliban. And to engage the Taliban, you have to work with regional players. So that's why India is now, you know, uh, we uh, India sent a delegation to the Moscow conference uh, in October 2021. Mm. India had also hosted all the Central Asian Republics presidents for mm. our Republic Day parade for Republic Day event. So this all shows that India realizes that India has to work with regional countries in Central Asia, in uh, Russia, in Iran. The External Affairs Minister had gone to Iran to attend the swearing in ceremony of the new president, right, Ibrahim mm -hmm. Raisi. So that strategic, let's say, recalculation is underway. Hmm. Something that I find really interesting from the book is the sobriquet uh, graveyard of empires, uh, which you use to define uh, Afghanistan, the history of it. Um, you also connect its effect to what is perceived as the great power fatigue and how it has led to a sort of uh, rethinking of strategic allies and rivals. Now, how are we going to see this play out, not just in the South Asia, but also in other parts of the world now that the U.S. is relocating its resources? I think we are already witnessing it, right? We, we started writing this book in July 2021 and we finished it by the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so, uh, yeah, after started after we started writing the book, the Taliban captured power in Afghanistan. 
so we had some certainty on that but at the same time we argued that america's withdrawal from afghanistan would have strategic implications in a global scale mm. and then we have also given the example of america's withdrawal from vietnam and also the you know uh, the soyuz crisis in which the british empire they went to support israel but they had to pull back immediately which practically brought the british influence in the middle east to an end for good the british still haven't realized it but it got over in the 1960s right so uh, so the american withdrawal from afghanistan will definitely have its impact on global politics mm. because the americans were forced to withdraw from vietnam in 1975 four years later there was a communist coup in afghanistan and the soviet troops were there in afghanistan so and uh, so this is uh, the great power fatigue is that the problem is there were two arguments when the americans were pulling back from afghanistan one was that when many people including i mean i was also writing that this is this is america defeat this is a defeat a clear defeat this is the world's largest military power world's largest economic power you fought 20 years war in afghanistan against some ragtag militia Mm. and then you were forced to withdraw right which is if this is not defeat what else but okay there is another set of argument which says that the united states pulled back from afghanistan at its will it is not a defeat that's fine that's an argument you know i understand that i understand the merit of that argument but the problem is that president vladimir putin or xi jinping or ayatollah khomeini could not buy the second argument they might look at the fact that the world's most important military power invested all its military resources in afghanistan for 20 years and then cut a deal with the taliban handed over afghanistan practically to the taliban and left the country so this is what we call great power fatigue mm. and then you see the americans were out of afghanistan in august 2021 on february 24th the largest military conflict in europe since the end of the second world war began so do you think that president putin would have sent russian troops to a nato ally 10 years ago ukraine is a nato ally anyway right it may not be a nato member but it's a nato ally and ukraine is propped up by the british and the americans everybody knows that being uh, the americans are sending weapons money everything so it's mm. a proxy war practically mm. but he wouldn't have done it in 10 years ago right when the americans went to libya the russians didn't even move they didn't make any noise about it and the americans went to iraq the russians did, did nothing yeah so uh, i think uh, so there was a reassessment of america's abilities by its rivals mm. so that's what we see now i mean uh, so what i expected was that to be frank i expected the chinese would take something they would do something in the south china sea that's what we didn't write it because that's what we were thinking because the most important confrontation geopolitical contests between china and the united states in the 21st century but what actually happened was that while the chinese continued to remain vigilant or cautious let's say the russians actually uh, you know pushed the fence and went into ukraine started a war adding to uh, what you were saying china is one country that has uh, indeed taken advantage of the great power fatigue and uh, now the focus has shifted to the indo pacific for good reason as well uh, china is making inroads in the south pacific and it is understandably a corollary of a power vacuum that has been building in this region for quite a while now 
and agreeing with you in the book where you mentioned that china us rivalry is an important lens to scrutinize international affairs in whatever domain these two powers engage i'd like to ask you how you think china will take forward its engagement with taliban and what possible sectors do you think china will focus on in this war torn country yeah um, i think uh, again like we looked at the indian case you look at the chinese case in afghanistan um so afghanistan is in china's backyard china shares a 70 plus kilometer border with afghanistan's badakhshan province and in the 1990s china faced some kind of security threats emanating from this region especially by the etim islamic turkestan um uh, the east turkestan islamic movement so china wants this threat to be neutralized from a security point of view uh, i think the july 2021 meeting between uh chinese foreign minister wang yi and the taliban co-founder mullah baradar practically i think actually discussed this uh, problem and the chinese foreign ministry's readout which is available on the internet the chinese ministry of foreign affairs says that uh, the taliban assured the chinese that they would never host any organization that are inimical to the security interests of the people's republic of china so china has got that assurance from uh the taliban that uh, the security threat would be neutralized so later on there were reports that the taliban had forcefully moved the etim militants away from the border region so secondly uh, what china wants is afghanistan's vast afghanistan has vast mineral resources by natural resources uh so it has oil uh, untapped oil potential it has huge copper potential gold rare earth minerals lithium etc etc so some research uh you know research has pointed out that afghanistan's resources uh, would you know would be uh, uh some 1 trillion worth or whatever so it's a it's a huge uh, uh pressure trough for china or any other superpower so china would definitely like to tap this uh, uh potential but it would make the investments only if afghanistan has a stable governance so otherwise it would not risk its money it would not risk its men mm. because the security challenges from afghanistan uh, so, you know would pose issues not only to mainland china but also to mm. chinese professionals and workers present in central asia and pakistan where they have already made billions of investments so it wants the security threat to be neutralized it would like to tap the natural resources potential of uh, afghanistan Hmm. and china would also definitely like afghanistan to emerge as a uh, you know meeting point of its geopolitical expanse uh, in a sense afghanistan's uh, it it has a strategically important geographical presence right it is at the meeting point of east asia south asia central asia and west asia hmm. on the one side you have iran on one side you have uh, uh, pakistan and on the on the other side you have china so it has a very peculiar geographical space afghanistan has so china would definitely like to have afghanistan as a partner in its security and economic engagement but for that what is fundamental is uh, whether the taliban would be able to offer stable governance to mm. uh, afghanistan and to other countries in the region mm. uh, that is still too early to look at so i think the chinese would be willing to make financial investments would be willing to offer economic assistance to the taliban but would stop short of providing security 
guarantees to the Taliban because the Chinese look at Afghanistan and see a graveyard of empire and they would not like to step into that graveyard from a military point of view. Right, of course, of course. When we talk about uh, Chinese engagements with the region, it is a dovetailed matter of uh, economic investment and uh, security implications. And ever since Xi Jinping took over in 2013 and the Belt and Road Initiative was announced, it also accompanied noticeable shifts in Beijing's foreign policy in relation with regional and extra-regional territories. Even if the importance of the region in the Western eyes have uh, slightly declined with the withdrawal of the US, for India, the Afghan conundrum is something we need to look out for in the long term as well. For one, India has to initiate proactive engagements with obvious risks of those efforts actually being perceived as legitimizing the Taliban government. This will be uh, a, a sort of a diplomatic tightrope, as they say that India has to walk in order to minimize the security and geopolitical implications in its immediate neighborhood. Uh, with that, we are coming to the end of the conversation here for now. Thank you, Stanley, for joining us today and sharing your insightful thoughts on the issue. More on the work that CPPR does in the domains of international relations and maritime security is available on our website, www.cppr.in. And you can also follow and engage with us on our social media handles, where we look forward to taking this conversation forward with you all. We will be back with another thought-provoking and interesting topic for discussion in the next episode. Stay tuned and have a great day.